Hey Patrick, how's it going? I was just, I'm gonna send you this message because I just heard the episode on Greta and it was so cool, thank you. I've been feeling this for a while and it's so reassuring to hear someone else like put it into like really good terms, everything I've been kind of just subconsciously feeling. Thank you, her work is fucking cool. And I was thinking I'm almost really uh, suspicious of viral things and I've noticed this here in Brazil recently that the National Bank of Brazil had a an ad like saying something about diversity. They just showed, you know, black people in the ad and it got censored by, you know, Bolsonaro's regime. And because of it now, every ad needs to go through a state approval thing. Basically how we had it during the dictatorship. And I, it, it went viral. So yeah, it's true, it's fucked up. But it went viral and I got suspicious because now activism has become basically sharing and boosting a bank ad. <laughs> you know? For, for one side, it's like really bizarre that our ads are going to be censored by the state. But ads themselves are bizarre and of the interest of the state. So yeah, now this ad is viral for the National Bank. <laughs> anyway, it's, a, it's really, really strange times. But thank you so much. It was awesome. Bye. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to learn anything about this project, the best place to go is lastborninthewilderness.com. A link to that's going to be in the description of this episode, and everything else I'm going to mention is going to be down there as well. And if you want to support this work monetarily, if you really like what I'm doing and you want to support this work, uh, please consider doing that through two means. There's the PayPal link, which allows you to do a donation. You go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast and treat that a bit like a tip jar. If you like this episode or any other particular episode I've done, please consider throwing a few dollars my way. It'd be very, very helpful. And if you want to support this work more regularly, you really want to sustain this work, you could do that through Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness, and there you can sustain this project with a dollar a month or more. And by doing that, you will gain early access to these interviews, and you will get it without all of this extra stuff that I throw here at the beginning and at the end of these episodes. And I would like to specifically thank my patrons for taking the time to... Uh, give me feedback to support this work monetarily. It means everything to me that people are choosing to support this work. So thank you so much to those that have chosen to do that. Uh, one last thing I want to say is is I have a, a thing that I'm kind of figuring out right now as far as how to present the introductions of this podcast. The introductions have gotten a bit long. And by long, I mean there's several components to it that I have kind of worked on and have added to it. So one thing that I've started doing over the past several months is the drop me a line feature. Uh, what I do is there's a phone number that people can call if you want to call it. I'll, I'll give that to you in just a moment. But you can call this phone number, leave me a message, and I could play it at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, what I've decided, though, is that occasionally I'm going to restructure the way that I present the drop me a line phone calls. 
In general, I'm going to keep them at the very beginning of the episode, but I'm going to put my responses to them at the very end of the episode. So if you look down in the description, you'll see a timestamp at the very top. You'll see a timestamp for when the introduction ends and the interview begins, and you will also see a timestamp for when the interview ends and when the response to the Drop Me a Line begins. But yeah, if you want to call that phone number, 208-918-2837, call that number. You can leave up to a three-minute message, and I can throw it on this podcast, and I can respond to it. It really has allowed for me to have more of a, a conversation with those that are listening, that are interested in the subjects of these podcasts. Uh, thank you all so much for your attention up to this point. Here's the episode. this episode, I speak with Paul Beckwith. Paul is a physicist, engineer, and a part-time professor at the University of Ottawa, and he is a part of the PhD program uh, with a focus on abrupt climate system change, which includes, of course, studying the atmosphere, the oceans, the Arctic, uh, methane release, etc. Uh, Paul is very well known for his YouTube channel, uh, where he releases videos quite regularly where he explains rather complex scientific ideas uh, regarding research into abrupt climate change. Uh, He has a multidisciplinary approach, so he's able to unpack uh, rather complex ideas and go through them detail by detail, but explain it in a way that anybody can really approach it. Anybody can really get close to understanding climate science and what's currently happening on this planet right now. Paul is somebody that I've been wanting to talk to for a while, and I think maybe a year or two at this point, I think I've been wanting to talk with Paul. So I was really happy that I could finally get a hold of him, that we could settle on a time to do it, and uh, for me to just sort of pick his mind a little bit on where we are at right now. Uh, The very beginning, at least uh, the majority, I would say, of this interview is just asking him, me asking him to expound on the science of climate change. You know, what is currently happening to the Arctic? Uh, What are the implications of losing uh, sea ice cover in the summer, right, Uh, which has been defined as the Blue Ocean event? You know, what is that? And I know that I've visited that subject several times on this podcast. It's always good to revisit it and to have other people bring up their perspectives on it, because uh, as time goes on, we are getting closer and closer to that event happening. And what are the implications of losing sea ice in the warm season? Uh, What does that mean for certain tipping points? How does that how does that figure into food production, and our ability to to live on this planet as a species? Uh, You know, he goes over all of these difficulties and these very difficult questions that come with understanding the science of this. 
Uh, and as uh, we go through this episode, I then ask him to go over what he he sees to be potential questions of engineering, as in how is it possible that we can approach uh, reducing or mitigating some of the worst impacts of abrupt climate change? How can we geoengineer, in a certain sense, our way away from uh, falling off the edge of the cliff, so to speak? While I personally have my own ideas, which I express in this interview about this subject, Paul has his own very different perspective on that matter. And so I, I really wanted to pick his mind on that that aspect of his work, which is in the community of people that I guess I define myself as being a part of regarding abrupt climate change, uh, I I do think that we are more likely than not heading towards our own collective extinction. That being said, I think we can learn a lot from people like Paul and his perspective regarding geoengineering. If we're heading towards our collective extinction anyway, we might as well do our best in the time that we have. And of course, I then try to ask him once we get into that subject and some of his ideas on that, some of the unintended consequences that could come from trying to geoengineer our planet and geoengineer our climate system. And then, of course, the other thing that comes with that is recognizing the broader systems that we're all collectively a part of and what these geoengineering schemes could ultimately serve. As in, we exist within an infinite growth paradigm. Uh, if we were to, say, stem the worst effects of climate change and continue to live on this planet several decades or centuries longer than we anticipated, what does that mean for the systems that we're actually embedded within? What does that mean for capitalism? What does that mean for an economic and social system that is based on this infinite growth model, which is the very reason why we're in the crisis that we're in right now. You know, these are all kind of questions that I kind of throw at Paul to see what his ideas are about these things. Uh, and we had a really rich, enriching discussion about it. And I really, really appreciated this conversation with him. So if you want to learn more about Paul, there is his website, paulbeckwith.net. Everything you need to know will be there. Uh, you can also find him on YouTube. I'll put a link down in the description uh, to uh, to his YouTube channel. And he's on Twitter and he's on Facebook, which he updates regularly. So go follow him there. Uh, and, it, and like I said, Paul's work is, is very uh, nuanced. It's very well conceptualized. And I think he's doing an incredibly valuable service for people in being able to articulate and explain rather dry, boring, dense climate data and then making it presentable to a wider audience that that's the true value of paul's work and so yeah please go find his work you can support his work as well i think you can find it through his website and on his youtube channel if you really want to support what he's doing uh, consider doing that as well so thank you so much paul for taking time out of your day to speak with me uh here is my interview with paul beckwith all right, Paul. Well, uh, thank you for, for doing this. I've been wanting to talk to you for quite a while, so I'm really glad that we found time to, to talk. Um, I really thank you for, for taking time to uh, talk about your work with me. Um, you know, you're pretty well known for your YouTube videos that you put out. They're fairly popular, I would say, especially uh, when it comes to explaining climate science and the impacts it's going to, it is currently having and will continue to have into the near future. Um, and what I really appreciate about your videos is that you explain 
pretty, I would say, complex uh, ideas. Uh, you, you know, you're going over scientific research, new papers, new information that's coming out, and you explain it detail by detail so people can kind of all be brought up to speed on what's currently happening um, on our planet that we all share. Um, and one of the things I really wanted to get at, at least at the very beginning, and it's, it's you know, it's a pretty broad subject when we kind of dig into it, but uh, one of the biggest indications of global climate change and the, 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 how quickly it's, it's really manifesting on this planet is what's happening in the Arctic. Um, it seems to me, at least in the past couple years, especially, and particularly the last several months, there's been pretty rapid, pretty dramatic changes. And if I could just ask you to go over some of those pretty big uh, changes that, that we're witnessing right now in the Arctic, I would really appreciate that. Yes, um, yes, uh, Patrick. Well, thank you for your wonderful um, uh, segue, your wonderful in- introduction there. So, yes, the the Arctic is um, changing faster than just about anywhere else on the planet. Um, so, basically, you know what we're, what's happening is there's all of these feedbacks that are that are kicking in. So, we've changed the chemistry of the atmosphere and the oceans with our greenhouse gases. But um, the warming that we're seeing as a result is um, not uniform spatially on the planet. So in the high Arctic, of course, we have the Arctic sea ice and we have the snow cover that covers the land. And those are very um, highly reflective surfaces. They have, we, we say that they have very high albedos. And um, what's happening is, is because of the warming in the Arctic, we're losing the sea ice cover rapidly. And we're also having a great reduction in the snow cover over the land. So the whole Arctic region is turning darker. Um, And to give you an idea, this is actually being measured um, by an experiment, um, some sensors called CERES, C-E-R-E-S, CERES um, sensors on on these NASA satellites. And it's showing that the reflectivity of the whole Arctic has decreased from about 52% to about 48% in the last number of decades. So the Arctic is a darker place so when the sun is up and it's it's absorbing a lot more of that light is being absorbed in the arctic as opposed to being reflected so that's the one of the big impetuses or reasons why the temperature is warming that much faster in the arctic than the rest of the planet now people say generally it's two times faster but it depends really on the on the definition you know there's different ways to define what do we mean by the arctic Um, As you go further and further north, the warming gets more and more extreme. So, you know, at least three or four or five times faster than the global average when you're in the very high Arctic. So what the problem is, is that the weather patterns are guided mostly by the what we call the jet streams. And um, because jet streams kind of guide storms and they kind of act like a wall separating the very cold Arctic from from warmer lower latitudes and of course we know that warm air holds more moisture so the cold Arctic um, doesn't carry a lot of moisture the air and the warmer um, air from further from south of the jet streams is very humid hot and humid um, so the jet streams are slowing they, they they're formed the reason they exist is because of a cold Arctic and a warm equator the temperature gradient 
the larger it is, the faster the jet streams will go. So that temperature gradient is decreasing because the Arctic is warming so much faster than anywhere else. That's slowing down the jet streams, making them much wavier. So you get these um, ridges, which go very, very far north, and these troughs, which go very far south. And, and um, these, these um, ridges tend to get stuck more often, and you get, um, we get stuck in these patterns. So, for example, we've had a trough over North America for most of this winter, and it's continuing now into the spring. And it's caused the, the region to be much, much colder be, because the Arctic air is just pouring south in, into North America. And also, we get a lot more precipitation, and we, we're getting these so-called bomb meteorological bomb cyclones. One about a month ago, and another one has just just occurred um, in the midwestern states. So when the snow, you know, and, and then the snow melts, and we get this huge flooding, and uh, you know, it's threat. It's really threatening the livelihoods of farmers, and also their ability to grow food to supply us with food. So I wouldn't be surprised if food prices uh, spike, um, you know, and it'll take a while to trickle into the system, maybe the end of the summer, early fall. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see spikes in food prices. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's having a really uh, a, a huge impact on on weather and, and things like that, like short. Yeah, yes, yeah. It, yeah, yes, basically it does. And not only that, um, when you think about the sea ice, in in the arctic ocean and then you think about the ice on greenland and think about you know where all this cold air is and where these cold surfaces are and where the center of them would be because the jet streams are kind of rotating about the center of the cold you know and they're also influenced of course heavily by earth rotation so imagine um no arctic sea ice the only cold region really in the arctic would would be Greenland, and the center of Greenland is 73 degrees latitude north. So that would, does this mean that the center of rotation of the cold of the jets, and therefore the center of rotation of the jet streams shifts down from around the North Pole, where it is now, 17 degrees south to the center of Greenland, because then the whole pattern will be offset towards North America. Um, And this is going to have huge implications for our weather you know, and when will we have this uh, so-called blue ocean event? No Arctic sea ice. I mean, mainstream scientists are still saying, you know, it's out there. You know, 2030, 2040. That's the type of um, time frame that they're talking about. But the trends of the data, especially with what's going on, you know, what we're seeing right now, is that the ice is dropping much faster than that. And you know, I still expect, and I've said it in the past, that. You know, within four or five years, I would expect, um, you know, that we have this first September where, where there's no sea ice. And that will greatly accelerate the extreme weather events that we're seeing and the threats to global food supply and, and all the rest of it. Okay. Yeah. And, and I, before I touch on, I really want to get into the blue ocean event. Um, but I want to ask one last question about, because we are talking mainly about North America, which is where both of us live. I, I live here in the United States in Idaho. You live up in Canada and Ottawa. Um, but we're part of this massive continent. Obviously, we're, we're going to be immediately impacted here in North America by it. But I know that Europe and Western Europe, especially, I, I feel like uh, has a very unique climate as a result of these jet streams that we've had for however many thousands of years. Um, it's been pretty regular. Um, but now that we're seeing this shift, as you just, just described, 
what can we expect in Europe? What can we expect in Asia or any other part of the the world as a result of this? Well, the basically what happens is um, we're moving from a world with a cold Arctic to, to one with um, very little um, snow and, and ice. Um, we're moving to th- thus this this world, you know, that is moving to one where the jet streams are much more fractured and broken and weaker, you know, and getting stuck. And, uh, you know, as the, when there's no Arctic sea ice, um, say the first, um, year, let's say, you know, let's throw a number out, let's say 2022, you know, no Arctic sea ice in September for maybe a couple of weeks or a month, then, the feedbacks get stronger and stronger because the ice isn't up there to, to cool the, the water and to cool the Arctic. Um, and it's a lot easier to heat up water than it is to melt ice. Melting ice takes tremendous amounts of energy and keeps the temperature near zero. So when there's no ice, the temperature isn't pegged to zero anymore. It can rapidly increase and it will as the ocean temperatures warm, etc. So, um, of course, the ice will reform after the first blue ocean event in the, in the winter. Um, but then, you know, it's, it won't form as sickly. The duration of freezing will be reduced. So probably within a few years, um, the blue ocean duration will last for August, September and October, not just in September. And then within, say, a couple more years, you can add another month onto either end, July, August, September, October, November, five months of the year. And then within a decade, um, I don't see why the Arctic sea ice would form at all. So we're, so this is, I think, the world that they're moving to, um, you know, a much, much, you know, different Arctic. And therefore, the jet streams will be way weaker. And the extreme weather events, I think, will, will skyrocket upwards. Now, what will really um, have more impact on our climate in such a situation where we're heading, I think, is a monsoonal type situation. So what we'll see is, you know, the, the water, water has a very, very high uh, heat capacity. So water tends to, it takes a lot of energy to change the temperature of water. So in the um, when when we're approaching summer, the oceans will be the, the land will heat up much much faster than the oceans. So the air will rise over the land, and that creates a low pressure area over the land. So that will suck in warm warmer moist air from the oceans, which will then rise up and cause rainfall over the land. So this is um, this is what happened. This is a monsoon that I'm describing. Okay, this happens at lower latitudes. Of course, you know, we all know about the, the uh, Asian monsoon, especially India. And uh, there's, a, there's actually a weaker monsoon in, 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 in North America, um, in, in the, the Southwest. And there's, um, so I think what will happen is that we'll see um, a monsoon type situation developing even far north. So what this means is that as the um, as we go into summer in the north and the land is heating, we'll get tr- the, the the monsoon effect happening even up in the Arctic where we get warm warmer moist air coming over land, dumping huge amounts of rain, 
And then in the winter, the opposite effect happens. The land will cool down more quickly than the water. So now the water is warmer. The air will rise <coughs> over the water with the humidity in it. And, as it, uh, and, and uh, what will happen is it will pull cold air off of the land. So the land will be very, very dry, right? It's like the monsoon is off for the land. And then in the summer, the monsoon is on. Now, of course, all of this rain will greatly increase the, um, the it, it will soak the ground. It will, it will infiltrate into the permafrost and melt the permafrost. So the emissions from, of methane and other greenhouse gases from the permafrost in the Arctic will greatly increase. Of course, Greenland will be sitting there with no sea ice around it. So the calving rates will greatly increase. The Arctic temperatures will be much, much higher because we won't have the cooling effect from the sea ice. Um, so Greenland melt rates will, will go way, way up. And this, is, uh, this, is, this will ramp up sea level rise. Um, significantly. So, you know, I think this is the type of situation that we're rapidly ap approaching. Um, and, and our politics is, is completely ineffectual in even, you know, dealing with, let alone, you know, under understanding um, the problem even. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to touch on the methane release. So one of the big fears, of course, is that if we, if it's warm enough in the Arctic, we'll see, uh, you know, I think apparently, uh, correct, me if, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're already starting to see an increase in methane release in the north. Um, but is there, what is the real danger here when it comes to methane and its impact on, uh, you know, temperature rise, the impact it's going to have on, on the global climate system? Yeah. Yes. Well, um, <clears throat> first of all, um, you know, methane... Um, just uh, just a little bit of a, a sort of backgrounder on, on methane, just very briefly to remind people. But the methane molecule is uh, it, it um, is much more effective at causing warming than a CO2 molecule is. So um, and and that number has actually changed, being updated with each intergovernmental panel on climate change report. So the the latest, uh, you know, numbers are that the that methane, the global warming potential or ratio of methane molecule warming to CO2 is uh, 34 times more effective. That's if you average over a 100-year time scale. Um, over 20 years, methane is 86 times more effective at warming. And over the scale of a year or two, a few years after it's immediately released, it's more like 150 to 200 times more effective of warming. So methane, um, you know, large methane releases in the Arctic, you know, the methane from either methane class rates or from just um, permafrost, either, you know, both on the land and under the sea, especially on the thin eastern Siberian Arctic um, shelves. Um, will significantly cause spikes in warming in, in the in the Arctic region, and you know there is quite a famous paper by Peter Wadhams from a few years ago where he looked at a fifty the idea of a fifty gigaton burst of methane if it came out in one year versus if it came out um, five gigatons a year for a decade, and he he you know he was working with an economist and they found that the effect on on, on our economies and our 
you know, way of life and infrastructure and cities would be, you know, something, you know, in the trillions, I, I believe. I don't remember the ex actual number. So he's looking at the risk. Now, the Russian scientists have been going out on ships onto the eastern Siberian Arctic shelf for years, and they've measured large increases in, in, in uh, methane, although on a globally, um, you know, and, and methane, if you look at methane distribution on the planet, Okay, uh, we've been measuring greenhouse gases in Hawaii at Mauna Loa since about, you know, the, the, the mid-50s or something, uh, continuous records. And, you know, we have stations all around the planet and both CO2 and methane, as you go further and further north into the Arctic, the values that are in the, the concentrations in the atmosphere are, are higher. Now, there has been um, some papers recently that have said that most of the increase in methane that we've seen since 2007 is actually due to things like, um, like fracking. Um, and also, you know, fracking is to get natural gas out of the ground. Natural gas is essentially 90% methane, 90% plus methane. So when people say natural gas and and ga you know ga gas um, you know we're talking about methane essentially, um, not gasoline of course, but uh, you know gas from oil wells and things that comes out directly, um, and um, you know also from things like wetlands. Now we do get more. We've changed the hydrology right for every degree Celsius of warming. There's seven percent more water vapor in the air. That water vapor goes up, and as I've said, it's being, you know, a lot of the storms are guided by the jet streams, and the jet streams are moving slower. So the storms are moving slower, and they're getting stuck over specific locations, causing torrential rain. You know, we're hearing of many locations that get a month or two months of rain, you know, in a day or a day or two. I mean, the latest this week has been uh, Rio de Janeiro, I believe. Um, just got a month or two of rain in, in a day or two, massive flooding. Also, Iran, uh, of all places, uh, huge huge amounts of flooding there. Um, you know, and most, um, of course, most um, people that do know of flooding, you know, are thinking of the Midwest flooding in the U.S. at the moment, especially if you're if you're in the U.S. So, um, yeah, the 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 whole climate system has been destabilized and. Where uh, you know the the powers that be when they do talk about taking action on climate change, they're all focused on one thing, and that's uh, slashing greatly increase decreasing fossil fuel emissions. But the climate system has already destabilized, so that will not be sufficient. That's required, but but not sufficient. Mm -hmm. Thank you for going over that. And one one other big thing I want to ask before we get into, you mentioned the political um, dimension of this, of course, and the inaction from governments and and all of that. Um, and I, and I know that you you talk a, a bit about solutions or or certain engineering or geoengineering ideas. Um, but before we jump into that, I want to ask one major. Uh, question before we do that, which is is how the ocean is being impacted by this. I know ocean currents plays a big part in this as well. Um, there's been pretty uh, dramatic shifts in in ocean uh, currents as a result of this. Uh, if you want to talk about the way the oceans have been impacted by uh, a you know carbon emissions or or just the changing climate in general, that'd be great. 
Yes, and uh, you know, as as we speak, I've been going through. I've been reading the last few days. I'm almost finished this this textbook called Oceanography: An Introduction to Marine Science. It's by Tom Garrison and Robert Ellis, and um, I think it's available as an ebook for like twenty bucks or something. You know, school textbooks are really expensive. Yeah, I'm teaching um, a spring course at University of Ottawa in oceanography. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've been just boning up on oceanography. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there was just a paper um, that from the Potsdam Institute that was talking about, you know, people. a lot of people are aware that there's kind of like, a, I'll call it a global warming hole, if you like, an area of the ocean south of Greenland that where the, wa- where the water temperature just hasn't been is no, you know, it's an anomaly. It hasn't been warming like almost all the rest of the ocean, and being attributed to um, a slowing down by I think fifteen percent or so of the so-called AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. So, so think of the uh, Gulf Stream coming up the east coast of the U.S. and then crossing across over to Europe, and it brings huge amounts of heat over to Europe, and it's slowing down. Um, and, uh, you know, as a result, it's not traversing the ocean where that really cold spot is in, to the same level it was before. So the oceans are, you know, of course, the, the oceans, the, the, I think the oceans are, I mean, the, the, the oceans, I think, are a huge part of what this, of, of, of there isn't a one set climate solution climate change solution there's a whole set of things that we need to do and i think the oceans is key for many of these things it does cover you know 70 percent of the earth we're only living on you know the land is only 30 percent or so so when we talk about um ways to pull co2 out of the atmosphere for example we tend to think just of what we can do on land whereas the oceans i think are a huge part but the ocean of course the big problem with the oceans is you know, the the warming, of course, is a huge problem because the ocean becomes more stratified or more layered. The warm water stays on the top and doesn't mix so much with water below because it's much lighter. And the nutrients are down below. And in order to get phytoplankton growth, which is they're at the base of the food chain, you need to get nutrients coming up from below. And there's less tendency for that to happen with a warmer ocean. Also, the, the CO2 in the atmosphere is exchanging with the oceans. It's, it's going into the oceans as carbonic acid, causing the ocean acidification, like the pH to drop, which then threatens things like shellfish and, and the skeletons and calcium carbonate shells and things of, you know, clams and, you know, this, the, the shells of lobsters. All kinds of things are affected. Coral reefs are, of course, a huge uh, you know, under huge threat um, from warm water and also from ocean acidification. So, so we have all of these massive issues, um, and uh, you know, it's it's um, yeah, we have all these the, these massive issues, and we're just not stepping up to the plate to to deal with them um, effectually at at all. And I say we governments of of the of the world you know, governments and politicians and, you know, things are getting much, much worse. And, you know, at some point I would expect to be a sort of a tipping point in human understanding and behavior on all of these threats. And then, you know, hopefully we could take some, um, 
strong action. Yeah. Well, I think that this largely comes down to uh, perspective. So I, I, I think what my my understanding has been, and and I think the understanding of, of many people that I've interviewed on this, this podcast has been that we're way past the point of even um, – of even doing anything that could really significantly stop this from happening, that too many thresholds have been crossed, too many tipping points have been crossed, too many feedback loops have been triggered. Um, We're already seeing massive, uh, we're already seeing it happening right now in in the weather events that we're seeing in the United States or in many other parts of the world, Um, you know, speaking as an American, of course, but but yeah, in many parts of the world, we're seeing uh, pretty dramatic changes. We're already seeing the impacts of this. And the the kind of general feeling I get is you're either on this in this camp of being like we're it's too late and we need to accept that and figure out how to live the best we can in the time we have. And then there's this other side of it. Well, actually, I think there's a lot of gray area, too, because I don't think you you specifically don't fit necessarily in either of these camps. Because then on the other end of that spectrum, I see, like, I see Extinction Rebellion, I see these kind of youth climate marches that are like, get governments to be, get you know, to, to act responsibly in the face of this, you know, do you know, reduce carbon emissions, do everything we can to mitigate this as much as possible in the time we have. Um, and then I see, you know, you being somewhere in the middle, which is like, yes, we're heading in this direction, but we have certain ideas that we can put forward, certain engineering or geoengineering ideas that we can put forward to to maybe reverse some of these trends or to at least make it a little better. Um, and I just want to ask like what your opinion is on that. Like what, what kind of ideas do you have? So if say the Arctic is warming at however much, uh, times the rate it is around the world, how do you, how do you stop the ice from completely melting in the warm season or, or how do you, um, deal with a warming ocean that's, as you've described is, is creating kind of mass bleach events, uh, for coral reefs and, and all these very, I mean, there's so many factors to this. So I, I think that often the, the, the solutions are so narrow. When people talk about we need to reduce carbon emissions dramatically and then create ways to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, um, I find that we're way past that point now um, of actually stopping this. So anyway, to sort of frame that within a question, what are some ideas that you've presented regarding uh, uh, kind of pulling it back a bit and maybe stopping some of the worst of what could happen to happen. Yes. Um, well, we know that um, humanity has created the problem for the first part. And the problem, you know, climate climate's always changed. I mean, you hear that a lot, and that's true. But what's happening now is happening much, much faster than at any time in the geological or paleo records. Okay, so the rates of change are enormous. And part of evolution is to, you know, evolution is, you know, you have organisms in an environment, the environment is changing, and certain traits that allow organisms, some of the spe- some of the organisms within a species to, you know, do better in that new environment, those traits get carried on and propagated, and traits that are harmful or that don't work get get kind of pruned out um, and it's from one generation to you know from one generation to the next generation in the species but now that the rates of change are so fast 
you know, it's very difficult for many species to adapt. They just can't, they can't evolve or adapt quick enough and, and they die off. So we're in this global, we're in this global extinction. You know, one of the most durable and successful species is the arthropods, and that includes the insects. And the insects are being massacred. Now, you know, how much of that is is temperature change and, and heat waves and precipitation change? And how much is these pesticides and herbicides that, that we just, you know, layer onto our environment? Um, and, uh, you know, how much is, is that? I mean, I'm sure both are factors. Uh, but we know that even in untouched areas, you know, the insects are, are struggling, you know, remote forests, the insects on the, on the forest floor and up in the canopy and at all levels are, you know, in huge decline. Of course, you know, that ripples up through the entire food chain. And in the oceans, I mentioned, it's the phytoplankton. So we're obviously, you know, like we may not succeed at anything we do, but I don't think that means that we don't try to um, to slow down what's happening, the bad things, and to try to get some sort of climate restoration. You know, if we go back to our, you know, you go back to your grandparents when they were young, I mean, they had a reasonable climate, right? The climate's, like, it wasn't changing anywhere near as fast. It's only, you know, in the last several decades, it's accelerated up. So, I look. I try to look at the physical aspects of the climate and say, you know, is there what physically would we be able to do, if anything, to change the trajectory that we're on with our climate? And that, after you know, a lot of sort of study, and uh, you know, I studied climate for years and years. I play chess, and in chess, um, you 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 know, you play a lot of chess via your pattern recognition. You know. What's what sort of structures are good and what are bad? So you look at a position and you know very quickly, you know what may be the best, you know what maybe the top three moves might be, and you look at those deeper and choose one. Well, in climate, you know the patterns are looking very very dire, of course, and not enough people look at the overall patterns. They're specialists; they look at a very specific narrow area. But if you do look at the overall patterns you know, it's all going downhill very quickly. So what can we do? Well, the first thing is we've changed the chemistry of the atmosphere with our, you know, with the greenhouse gas levels are way, way up. So we need to stop their increase, you know, which is slashing fossil fuel emissions. And uh, some of the greenhouse gases would um, like, like are short lived, you know, methane, if we talk about um, some of the aerosols like black carbon, those things are short lived are cleaned out of the atmosphere fairly quickly um, and, um, you know, would reduce the amount of warming. But CO2 is long-lived, and the only way to, you know, to restore a stable climate, we need to really restore the greenhouse gas levels that were we had when the climate was stable. So, you know, call it 350 parts per million, call it 300 parts per million. The only way to consider approaching levels like that is through a huge program of carbon dioxide removal. And I'll talk about some of the techniques um, that are being considered in a moment. But again, that's not the only thing that, that that's not good enough. Those two things are required, but not good enough. You know, if, if we continue, as we continue to lose Arctic sea ice and lose snow and ice in the Arctic, the Arctic's warming is going to skyrocket and that's going to disrupt the entire 
the, not only you know the jet streams and and extreme weather events uh, for where most people live, but the warming in the Arctic will greatly accelerate, and the Earth will start producing, releasing huge amounts of greenhouse gases, right? And we don't want that to you know we we pass these points, and then then it's really out of our hands. We can't do much. So we need to attempt to um, to to cool to keep the Arctic cooler. And there's only one way of cooling the earth, really, that I know of. And, and that's to, you know, if you block some of the incoming sunlight, or if you reflect more of the incoming sunlight away from the earth, rather than have it absorbed, you can get a cooling. And we know that this works from volcanoes. Um, when Pinatubo went off in 91, 92, it basically um, injected the mechanism we know. It puts sulfur up into the stratosphere above the weather. The sulfur blocks some of the sunlight. It cools the earth. And it cooled the earth for about half a degree for up to about three years. Now, we know that putting sulfur... So we know that putting sulfur up in the stratosphere will cool the earth. Um, can we specifically cool a specific region of the Earth, like the Arctic? Um, you know, we can we can try. There's other techniques. There's a technique called marine cloud brightening, for example, where you know marine clouds exist and they reflect sunlight and they cool the Earth underneath. You know, mostly water, of course. So when we're talking about marine cloud brightening, so cooling the water going up into the Arctic. So we know that um, the water droplets that condense, if they're into very, if they condense into very, very tiny droplets, the reflectivity is much higher. They block much more of the sunlight than if the droplets are large. So the idea of marine cloud brightening is to basically adjust the situation, take seawater, pump it through nozzles, the salt crystals come out, the salt crystals are of a certain size, depending on the engineering of the nozzle, et cetera. And that small size uh, water vapor condenses on that salt, forming very, very tiny droplets, low level, you know, a kilometer, a couple kilometers above the, above the ocean. And that blocks huge amounts of sunlight and cools the ocean underneath. So marine cloud brightening is, is something that... So, so we know um, enough about systems and, that will work. We just have... To the whole thing, it's an engineering problem, really. How do you scale these systems up to actually have, have a global effect? And, and with, the, um, with the carbon capture, for example, um, you know, some people just say, you know, stop cutting down the trees and let's, have a tr let's plant trillions of trees around the planet. And this will make a huge impact in the amount of CO2 that's removed from the atmosphere. Or let's stimulate the phytoplankton. Let's restore the ocean, um, the teeming life that was in the ocean 100 years ago. Let's just restore it. Okay, let's bring it, bring it back. So how do we do that? Well, we're going to stimulate phytoplankton blooms in parts of the ocean where there's no phytoplankton. Um, we're th then we're going to get a whole ecosystem going, maybe floating, you know, in these floating mats around the ocean. Maybe we can stimulate um, kelp growth. You know, kelp grows, can grow a half a meter, you know, one and a half feet a day, uh, the, some of the kelp forests. And 
you know, it can be as long, it can go from the bottom 150 meters down to the surface, these, these kelp beds, and store huge amounts of carbon, right? And it's fixed to the bottom. Or what about um, the, the, the kelp that um, floats around the ocean in the Sargasso Sea? You know, it's like a floating kelp. Um, or what about having, like, like we can extract huge amounts of carbon from the atmosphere and oceans if we, um, if we, if we repopulate the oceans, you know, get them teeming with sea life again of, of all different sizes and, and, uh, of, of fish. I mean, we've, we've lost 90% of the fish in, in the large fish in the oceans. Um, you know, some studies show there'll be more plastic in the ocean, then, then the weight of plastic in the ocean will exceed the weight of fish, you know, in, in uh, 20 or 30. I mean, the thing, the thing is, is we're, we're not doing any of these things right now. I mean, these ideas are out there. There's only, you know, how do we pay for this stuff? Well, let's take the U.S., let's have the U.S. military say, okay, you know, the climate, climate change is threatening our very existence, our way of life, everything. It's the real threat. So we're going to take all of this money that goes to the scientists and engineers that develop new weapon systems, et cetera, 700 billion, and we're going to take it for one year and we're going to look at, we're going to figure out how to make renewables more efficient, how to scale them up, you know, you know, 10 times, 100 from the atmosphere with some with uh, direct air capture or, you know, we're, or, or, or deploying all of these things. Like, like if this, if the real true nature of the threat, which is climate change was recognized, you know, society has tremendous amounts of resources that can be poured into trying to address the problem. And I can guarantee you that if the U S military, you know, um, said, okay, we're going to do this for a year that that would be followed by Chinese, China and Russia and all the other military. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, the, you know, it, it's like, like, what's, you know, what does the government exist for? One of the things is for public safety. Right. And they're doing the opposite thing. They're all supporting and pushing uh, fossil fuels, infrastructure sort of stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, well, so uh, by no means am I a scientist. So I, w- I want to pose this very humbly uh, <laughs> with a certain amount of, you know, this is just my position. Um, so I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from on this. Obviously there are ideas there's, as you said, it's an engineering problem. Um, but is there, you know, because the, the climate system, and I'm sure from what I, from what I gather is that the more it's researched, the more that we see how disrupted it's become, uh, as a result of, of human industrial activity. I mean, we could look at, uh, as you mentioned, the pesticides, how that's impacting, uh, insects and pollinators, um, all of the various ways in which human beings and our systems are impacting the the life systems of this planet, the climate system, everything. Um, it seems to me that the problem lies in the fact that we, if if we were to try to do those things you said, um, now again, this is I could just be talking out of my ass right now, but basically, when you try <laughs> to say create something that'll help save the Arctic from completely melting in the winter time. Um, or you're trying to uh, alter the oceans directly in the ways that you've mentioned, that there may be unintended consequences to doing that, and that it would be really difficult if 
altogether, maybe not impossible, but very, very difficult to anticipate what those consequences would be in the way that when human beings use a technology like dams, they didn't necessarily anticipate, or even if they did, they didn't seem to, the, the engineers didn't seem to care how the dams would impact the the river ecology, how it would you know impact the way salmon migrate and and breed, um, how that impacts the entire ecosystem, and not just other non human life, but other human communities as well. Um, it seems to me that that there are all kinds of unintended co- consequences when we try to generate these mass engineering projects. Um, I, I just want to pose that as like a, an idea that, yes, you know, that there could be as a result of trying to do these things, which I think could be a very noble effort um, that we may in fact make things maybe not worse, but certain feedback loops or certain tipping point or certain things that we wouldn't have even anticipated would come about as a result of trying to mess with these systems. Right. Yeah. Right. So, unintended consequences so we're talking about the risk here really right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you're talking and you brought up that there are risks which is very valid points that there are risks with with doing some of these enormous uh scaled up projects to try to either remove co2 from the atmosphere or to cool the arctic and so on but we need to we can't look at those risks in isolation we have to look at those risks and weigh them against the risks of not doing anything or weigh them against the risks of you know how our climate system is changing you know right now you know how our you know it, our global food supply is, is is under threat um you know i mean it it's uh you know our our, our civilization is is under threat Right, our cities are being destroyed. Huge um, states are being inundated with water. Um, you know, these are unintended consequences of burning fossil fuels continuously. Right. So and so, surely, um, you know, the unintended consequences of something like putting sulfur dioxide up into the atmosphere to cool the planet. You know, if it starts having unintended consequences, um, then we could stop doing it. It's not like fossil fuels, which we can't, you know, clearly we, we're not able to stop our addiction to, to fossil fuels. So, it, you know, when, when people talk about, um, you know, I, I mean, I would argue that the, the risks are enormous from doing nothing and they far exceed any of these um, risks that I can think of for trying to I mean, what can, you know, let's do some of the more innocuous things. I mean, uh, you know, let's plant a trillion trees on the planet to soak up CO2. Yeah. Right. I mean, what are the, what are the unintended risks of, of that? Like, yeah, let's start projects to do that. Let's start projects to, um, you know, uh, let, let's try putting some marine cloud brightening, which is just spraying seawater into the air. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's put let's let's fit ships with that and start doing that in the Arctic and seeing if we can start cooling the Arctic. Um, there's a comp- there, there's a there's a startup called Ice Nine Eleven or something, and they they want to use these very small micro beads, glass beads, basically silicon dioxide, to 
make the ice more reflective and make the seawater more reflective. And, you know, people say, well, putting glass up into the Arctic, you know, small microbe leaves, I mean, that would be horrible for the environment when you first think about it. But then when you realize that um, one of the, in, that in the Arctic, one of the most common types of plankton are diatoms and diatoms, they form a glass skeleton and a very tiny microskeleton as part of their body when they grow. And uh, these are, so we're talking about just trying to do some things that nature is already doing, you know, little glass beads, you know, tiny, tiny little glass beads proliferate in the environment in this type of plankton, right? Yeah. So the idea is to, you know, uh, use these things on the ice, for example, to try to make them more, make it more reflective. I mean, there's loads of different things, but we have nowhere near the number of people that we need on, on the planet to think about and to, you know, trial and to do these things because there's this public perception that, well, we screwed things up so badly, anything we do to try to stop the problem is actually going to make it worse, right? We we end up getting caught in these sort of um, thinking um, loops, if you like, and uh, it stops us doing taking any action at all. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, and, and it, what I really do not understand the, the the Doomer community who says we're all gone in 10 years and they and then you talk to them about sulfur about sulfur aerosol injection or something, and they say, "Well, that'll make things much worse, unintended consequences." And I say, "Well, what do you mean? Do you mean that that will reduce the ten years that we have to eight years, according to your thinking? Like, where's your logic on this?" Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I yeah. mean, what do they, what do they actually mean? And they never, you know, they can never answer that question because, you know, clearly. Um, you know, some like, like it's just right. So, so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, um, you know, and, and, and it may not work. I mean, we may not be able to do, do anything. Yeah. Right. But yeah. we haven't tried, we haven't, we haven't put any resources in, into it. Right. You know, when we stop subsidizing fossil fuels and when some of that money goes to subsidizing, um, some of these other things, you know, cl action on climate you know, which is what the students are demanding, you know, Extinction Rebellion, you know, all of these groups are trying to raise awareness on how serious the uh, climate problem is, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, um, yeah um, and I guess another sort of, this, this question has a really strong political dimension to it, but it's, so one of the trends that I'm seeing right now with these youth climate marches and um, this sort of massive effort that I'm seeing from, uh, nonprofit organizations, and uh, as certain uh, journalists have described it, the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, they have really deep ties to, I would say, the billionaire class. You know, the the very wealthy class of individuals that have they they want to they want to transform our economy into a so called sustainable economy, but it's still an, a capitalist economy. It's still based on the the idea of growth. And I think that that's the underlying one of the major under, underlying flaws of of many of these major projects or these sort of big activist um, uh, groups is that you know they're not really critically analyzing the very systems that have gotten us into this situation to begin with, um, and 
one of the, the fears that I have is that, yes, we will start to do things like you're recommending, not not you specifically, but some of the ideas that you brought up. Um, and that'll be only in service to maintaining a socioeconomic system that is actually will that that does not blend in any any real way with actual sustainability um you know actually living in in sort of a a balance with the ecosystems of this planet or the natural world itself um i i find that it's very possible that the narrative is currently being hijacked by these by these individuals by these groups yeah yeah right and that that to me is a big fear so when I think about your geoengineering um, suggestions, and I'm like, okay, yeah, let's let's figure this out. Let's see if we can throw a few ideas out there. My, and I want to sound defeatist, and I, I'm really yeah, trying. Yeah, no, I know exactly yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, um, I know. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, let me give an example, a good example that fits right in with what you're saying. Okay. Okay. So, so in the '70s, '72, uh, the Club of Rome um, published their book, uh, famous book, "The Limits to Growth," right? And they said that. Um, the human population couldn't keep growing much um, because, um, and I, I guess the population was probably, it was about a billion in the six, in, in 60s, you know, maybe it was not quite 2 billion by that time when that book came out. Um, not sure exactly. It can, somebody can, you know, it could be looked up easily. But the point was that um, they, they said that we, we, that food supply was increasing at a certain rate population was increasing at an exponential rate and that alone would 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 put an upper limit to population it couldn't keep growing there were limits to the growth and they also talked about minerals and things that people used and what happened of course was that you know we had these enormous breakthroughs in in um, farming and we managed to double yields double the amount of crops that could come off a field and then double it again and double it again and double it again you know and uh yields went way way up and that made that avoided the the upper limit at that time so let's just think for a minute that let's say that that technology had not come along okay back then and if that technology had not come along there would have been massive starvation like pop if population probably still would have grown and grown until there was you know uh, massive uh, food shortages and massive starvation putting a limit on the population then humans would have had to actually sit up and say okay we have to take some hard actions here we can't you know do we do we want to have these continuous cycles where we get mass die-offs of, of, of humans from starvation and then you know, society then picks up and continues and then population grows exponentially and then another mass die off and another mass die off, right? Or do we want to say, well, we have to, we, we have to um, talk about the whole system of the planet and how many people can live on the planet and, and, and figure out how to um, live within the means and be truly sustainable. And if that had happened, you know, now we wouldn't be having the climate crisis that we're having, Right. We would have we would have a global population of maybe a couple billion and not seven and a half billion. You know, we would have had to deal with exponential growth and stuff and consumerism growth and stuff like that. And we'd have quite a different world. So the, the argument is that so I see exactly what you're saying. So geoengineering could be like these huge improvements in, in food production back in the 70s, maybe 
maybe um, in the long run for humanity, these things would work in the short run and allow us to continue our way of life and capitalism to continue and population growth to continue until we reach another wall, which we eventually can't solve. And we have a population crash, right? So, so the point is, is uh, you know, when I talk about these sort of things, I talk about them from a survival standpoint. Like I talk about them for how can we preserve some semblance of humanity, you know, um, some, how, do we, how do we restore, you know, an ecosystem? How do we ensure that we don't have a, you know, a mass extinction on the planet that includes ourselves, right? These are like emergency stopgap measures, but they're no good unless we address these underlying issues like the population and consume, rampant consumerism and, and all of this crazy stuff. I mean, I, I just, uh, in the oceanography stuff I've been looking at, um, there's, a good, there's a good section on the Emirate of Dubai and how they're changing the coastlines, how they've, they've, they've basically dredged up millions of tons of, of sand and created artificial islands in the shape of uh, a pineapple, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and how they, they have all of these very wealthy people that are buying places on these artificial islands. And these things are all, the, you know, built, it's like, don't build houses on sand. <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah. like the excesses of the excesses of humanity. You know, it makes you sort of wonder: Do we, uh, you know, do we even deserve to have this planet? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, we go. It's craziness, craziness, and then it extends to the the politics and so on. So you know, this um, these ideas um, of of removing CO two and cooling the Arctic and things like that. The, the these ideas are. Yeah, they're 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 not for trying to preserve by any means any of the systems that we have as far as rampant capitalism and exponential population growth and stuff. They're they're trying, you know, it's more of a it's more of a survival thing so that, you know, people can live long longer term on 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 this on this planet and you know, uh that everything doesn't completely collapse for us, which is what it's doing. What that's what exponential growth does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely. So I, I don't know if uh, that that answers your your question, but I guess maybe um, the you know the the pain still needs to get a lot greater for for people before they'll sit up and say, well, what what can we do? What are we going to do? Yeah. Well, I think that's the big fear that I I guess I have or other people may have is that. The, the unfortunate thing is that unless it impacts, especially I think the the more highly industrialized nations, yeah, then then things will start changing, right? And and, right. and even then, the changes that we may want or anticipate um, may not go in the direction that we want, and and that's the real danger because I don't think that it, this gets into whole like the the political trends that we're seeing right now, and and I I think authoritarianism is rising. I think all of these other really frightening trends politically that we're seeing um, may lead to to certain governmental actions that may be really oppressive and actually make things a lot worse um, in, in the short term as a result of climate change. And I think that's something we need to really pay attention to. And I've tried to highlight that quite a bit on my podcast um, as well. But, but I want to ask about timeframes here because things I, I mean, 
I, I think all of us that are, are, I would say, collapse aware or are aware of abrupt climate change or aware of all these things that we've been talking about, um, we're kind of just sitting here. Not a lot of people are taking action, and I don't want to dismiss that at all. People are trying to do something, but all of us are kind of collectively waiting for when it's going to impact us more directly. As you said, you know, when the pain is so much that we really stand up and do something. So, talking about timeframes, I know it's really difficult to talk about you know, to make predictions and to say, this is when this is going to happen and this is going to happen. But based on what you've seen this year, let's say with the Arctic or any other uh, aspects of the climate system that we've discussed, um, what can we anticipate in say the next five years? Let's just frame it in that five to 10 years. What, what kind of expectations do you have regarding that? So more of the physical, physical system or, you know, physical system. Society, as opposed to societal reaction or yeah, I think, non-reaction or yeah, yeah. yeah um, well, I think that the um, you know I would still say that um, you know it's extru- that the, the probability of of uh, completely losing the sea ice um, is um, very very high. Um, you know, within that time frame, you know, it's more likely than not for sure, <clears throat> and. Uh, as a result, the, you know, the, the Arctic will, you know, these extreme weather events that we're seeing, these, these flood events in, in, in the U.S. and all over, you know, the torrential rains around the world. And, you know, I think that the frequency, severity and duration of these events will, will continue to increase, you know, and it'll be rapid increases. Um, so they'll happen more often. You know, instead of getting two months of rain, maybe we'll get, it'll just rain and rain and rain. We'll get, you know, complete deluges of, of uh, you know, everything will be washed away in certain regions. And this is like a monsoon. I mean, in a monsoon in India, they can get, there's a place in India, they I think they get something like 20 meters of rain a year. And it's all during the monsoon season. And then it's dry the other half of the year. Right. So imagine some sort of rainfall levels like that. You know, you get this atmospheric river looping off over California on a continuous basis, like what happened, um, you know, uh, last century. Well, in the eight, late 1800s, 1880 or something, and it just rained solidly for 30 days. And there, there was an inland lake formed, you know, in, in one of the most pr- um, productive agricultural areas of California. Right in a depression, Sacramento was under about ten feet of water, right? And uh, you know, so things like 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 the ramping up of these things. I mean, it's happening right now. I mean, last um, last hurricane season, you know, there there were some you know as bad as it was, you know, with Puerto Rico and so on, Hurricane Maria and Irma and and some of these other ones, Harvey over Texas. Um, you know, there like Miami, eastern, east, the east coast of Florida dodged um, a bazooka, basically. <laughs> I mean, Miami and Palm Beach and that area. If, if like the, the hurricane coming up, it veered to the left and came across on the Everglades, twelve hours before it, it was it was aiming right for the east coast, Miami and Palm Beach, Palm Springs and Palm Beach. Uh, you know those areas. Um, Palm, it's Palm Beach, right? Not Palm Springs. Palm Springs, but, I think, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, um, you know, we're talking, some estimates were maybe a trillion dollars worth of damage if it had continued on that path, but it veered 12 hours before it 
made landfall. So we're seeing we're seeing all of these things. You know, we had Sandy in in uh, New York. Um, you know, doing the left turn when all other storms, you know, turn right, basically. I mean, here, here we had a hurricane, Sandy, combining with, like, an extratropical storm, like a nor'easter, you know. So it became this hybrid superstorm and then came ashore. So we're seeing all of these things happening at higher frequencies and stuff. So I think, you know, I think that's just going to continue. I mean, I would expect that, you know, I, I would think that we're getting very close to having, you know, if we have simultaneous failures of, of uh, prolific um, food growing regions, right, then, um, I mean, let's combine the, uh, you know, in 2010, we had heat waves, you know, in Russia, you know, and they, they lost 40% of their grain crops. You know, sure, there were food price spikes and stuff, but globally, there were other countries that picked up the slack with the food. But, you know, and, that, and this year, we have the um, U.S. Midwest, right? I mean, how can farmers plant? The fields are covered in water, and, you know, they're going to, they lost a lot of the grains that were stored. Um, you know, you know, water, grains in elevators would get wet and then they'd expand and they'd explode open the, the, the grain elevator and it would collapse. I mean, we've seen images of that, right? We lost a lot of the stored foods and if we can't grow, then that will raise food prices. But, you know, if, if food is covered in elsewhere, we'll just buy more and more food from other parts of the world. But, you know, all we need is a couple of simultaneous things like that happening when there's just not enough food to go around. So, you know, I think that's the risk of that happening in the next five years is, is greatly increasing, I would say. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, food, so, food production for sure. Yeah, so, you know, and I mean, is, and, and if those things happen, then, you know, maybe, just maybe we'll see, a, a, you know, a tipping point in, you know, we're starting to get a, a tipping point in, in, in human understanding of, climate change because more and more people are affected by it in their day-to-day lives but you know we're not we're just not i mean the political systems are mostly controlled by very few people and there's a lot of climate deniers that have taken over you know sort of sort of like a last gasp but preserving their fossil fuel industry the way it's been and uh, you know it's unfortunate that it happened it you know it was just very there was very bad luck involved, um, you know, and, and like, you know, a couple of the key things was, uh, you know, Al Gore losing the election to Bush. I mean, that was very, very close. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, Trump getting, getting, getting in. And, but I mean, Obama promised all of these things and just didn't deliver them. He didn't have the support, I guess, with the rest of the politicians, but, yeah, the I mean, I mean, very, very powerful and rich people that are climate deniers, um, you know, uh, controlling controlling the system and keeping the keeping the uh, business as usual stuff going, and you know, downplaying, denying, um, not even talking about climate change, getting rid of research in climate change. Um, you know, it's yeah, it's not it's not going away, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Paul, I really, I think we went over pretty much everything I wanted to touch on. I really appreciate your really deep insights into all these subjects. Um, I think getting, even if there is a difference in opinion or perspective, the very fact that that there's people like you out there uh, 
putting this information out there and 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 putting it and putting it in in a certain way and presenting it in a certain way, I should say, that is actually really digestible. I think is really important right now. I think a lot of times this climate science stuff can get a bit difficult to interpret. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think exactly. you're doing a really valuable thing in what you do. Um, I know that you're on YouTube under your name, Paul Beckwith, and it's where most of your, I, I feel like most of your work tends to come yeah. out through there. Um, yes, exactly. But there is your website, paulbeckwith.net, and you're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, is there any other resources that I could uh, turn people on to? Um, I think those those are the main ones that, that you uh, that you've covered. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm on LinkedIn as well okay. and uh, a few others, but I don't... Uh, I don't do as much on, on them. Right. Um, yeah. You pretty much mentioned, uh, yeah. Okay. The, the, the website and the videos. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's hard to know how to, to sign, I guess, find a conclusion to this discussion, except yes, it, it is. Uh, well, we'll have to do it again. Sometime. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You I, can tell me, um, who has the last born person in the wilderness, has that happened already? Or is it still, <laughs> are there still people being born in the wilderness? I don't know. It's, uh, I, you know, the, the name is sort of ambiguous and I kind of like it that way, but, uh, it really just is a reference to a couple different things, which is, um, I don't know if you're interested at all, but basically the name comes from the fact that I grew up, um, in the Mormon church. I grew up LDS oh. and there's a passage in the early part of the book of the Book of Mormon, I don't know how familiar you are with this religion. I'm not a part yeah. of it any longer. I just want to be that. Yeah, very... not not a lot, but it's an interest. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's really a fascinating thing once you look at it, kind of from an outsider's perspective. But the, the really early on in the Book of Mormon, which is a really important book for for the LDS Church, of course, there's this passage, and it's I'm pretty sure it's paraphrased, but it's talking about. The, the the main characters in this story, they're moving through the wilderness and there there's a mention of someone being born, the last born in the wilderness or something. And so when I uh, when okay. I was a when I was a kid, my because I'm the youngest of six kids, my father would call me the last born in the wilderness because we're very religious growing up and so that right, was right, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's well no, it's yeah. great uh, <laughs> Story. Yeah, yeah, and then great name for your blog. Yeah, yeah, and then as but then as the podcast evolved, I should say, I, I would say that the podcast has taken on a real ecological dimension, and so the name is kind of evolved into include that as well so it's it's strange i think when people look at my podcast at the name it's really hard to like what the hell is this thing even about <laughs> so, but <laughs> no it's good I, it's good yeah i, I mean it's, it's uh, catchy right yeah you don't you yeah. don't forget it yeah but, uh, definitely anyway thank you I, I appreciate uh you know uh talking and we'll we'll have to uh do it again hey everybody i hope you enjoyed that interview with paul Really enjoyed that discussion with him. I think we covered a lot of great topics. So thank you, Paul, uh, for talking with me about uh, about those really uh, important subjects. I think we need to be thinking about, uh, especially in the time that we're in. So, so yeah, I really hope you all enjoyed that. And Mina, thank you for that call. Uh, of course, you could you could hear Mina's message at the very beginning of the episode. And like I mentioned in the introduction, uh, a little bit I've restructured the podcast a little bit to where I'm still doing introductions, obviously. But uh, I'm still going to include uh, the brought me a line calls at the beginning most often. Um, and then I'm going to do my responses here at the end of the episode. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you'll see a timestamp 
down in the description so you can see when the interview begins and when the beginning of the drop me a line response begins mina thank you Uh, this is the second time i've featured a, a message that you've sent me and of course people that have listened to this podcast for a little while know that i've interviewed mina previously and she is a uh, the editor, managing editor over at Gauze and Radicals, our, our site editor. I'm trying to remember exactly. I think she's managing editor. I get so confused with all the different titles that people have. But I know that she's definitely in charge of the website. And I think she's basically taken up managing of that website. And Gauze and Radicals, as I've mentioned numerous times on the podcast, is one of my favorite publications. So anyway, Mina actually just released, speaking of all the things that she just mentioned at the beginning of the episode regarding viral activism and all of that, she had a really great piece that she released uh, on Gods and Radicals. And I just want to mention it because it ties in perfectly. You know, she said, like, we're all kind of synced up. Um, we're talking about and addressing certain topics and subjects that are all tied together. Um, I just want to mention her her article. I think people should read it. You can go to the website, abeautifulresistance.org. The, the title of it is Trending Topics Don't Matter. And uh, Mina says at the very beginning of this essay, Black Lives Matter is not a hashtag. A burning Gothic cathedral doesn't really matter. And watching Jason Momoa shave his beard is hot, but it won't clean up the oceans. We went through this phase where we thought social media could be the cradle of a revolution. But now that this idea had time to mature, we can see it for the passing phase it is, can't we? Social media algorithms are the guise of censorship and media control. Trending topics, which are based on sharp spikes in the volume of mentions of a topic, can be easily manufactured and capitalized on. For a while, we believed these sharp spikes could be used to raise awareness of important issues that are usually neglected by mainstream media acting as an editorial process of the people. But now it's clear that these are extensions of the mainstream media. Trending topics and hashtags are tools to up ratings, not to mobilize revolution. It stirs a disoriented flock of people in a misleading direction, one that seems to be for a cause, cause with quotations around it, when in reality it's more likely to be an elaborate marketing scheme for something we didn't even know was a product, such as a cultural capital tourist destination. Okay, so... Mina and I think Corey Morningstar and other individuals, like obviously I featured Corey Morningstar and that's what Mina was referencing. She was talking about the Greta episode uh, in reference to Greta Thunberg, which isn't so much about Greta. And I want to make that very clear. And I've had to reiterate this since that episode came out. When I released that episode with Corey Morningstar, Corey had done a six act expose into the manufacturing of Greta Thunberg for consent. That's the title of her piece. And Greta Thunberg, of course, has become the face of the climate movement, the face of youth climate justice, I guess, or, you know, kind of promoting like we need to do, you know, we need to get governments and we need to get people to really do something. And and the thing that Corey examines in her piece isn't an attack on Greta, it's an examination of the nonprofit industrial complex, the various nonprofit organizations that have billionaires and the capitalist class invested in it and are directly a part of it. These groups are trying to direct and control the narrative of how we address climate change and the environmental crisis more generally. And they're doing that by basically rebooting capitalism. And if you, I don't want to repeat everything that was said. I've talked about this so many times now at this point. Um, but listen to that episode I did with Corey Morningstar. It's episode 188 of the podcast. Um, but that's the that's the episode that Mina's talking about. So in discussing what Mina wrote in her essay on Gods and Radicals and in discussing what 
Corey Morningstar addresses in her work as well, we should, and this is exactly right, Mina, absolutely, we are being socially engineered. We are being uh, led in many ways in certain directions. We are distracted. It's like a shiny object, you know, like this trending topic over here and this hashtag over here and everybody pay attention to this and over over to this. And it really is, like you said, it's about capitalizing on activism and the activist spirit, right? People really want change. They really want to make things better. I think there is that underlying drive, but those impulses and those drives can be hijacked and we have to be very, very vigilant in this time and being able to discern these these trends, these topics, these various uh, efforts by nonprofits and, and advertising companies and public relations and all these different groups that have really just one interest, which is to perpetuate the capitalist system into the future and in the short term to maximize their own profits. And, uh, you know, as, as Mina, you mentioned in Brazil, uh, you know, that this reminds me, uh, I've mentioned this numerous times, I've talked about it numerous times, I brought it up in the episode of the Corey Morningstar but the whole deal with Colin Kaepernick and branding. Colin Kaepernick, of course, in the United States, he's an NFL, or was an NFL quarterback for the 49ers. Uh, he's a black man who was kneeling during the Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem uh, here in the United States, right? During the beginning of the game, they play the National Anthem. They have someone sing it or whatever. Everybody's supposed to stand and put their hands over their heart and feel that, you know, that warmth of patriotism course through their veins and all that bullshit. And he, and he, I'm not saying he's not patriotic or doesn't buy into that in some means or another, uh, but what he did as a, a sort of a silent protest is he kneeled during these national anthems as a way to highlight police brutality and the sort of systemic racism that we have here in the United States. Of course, it was incredibly controversial, and everybody had their opinion on it, and people were boycotting the NFL, and the NFL uh, team owners and the uh, administration uh, were like trying to figure out how to deal with this crisis because it was spreading, right? Like more and more players were doing this and Donald Trump got involved and was saying all this bullshit about Kaepernick. And anyway, Kaepernick then was blacklisted or blackballed or whatever from the uh, NFL and lost his, his job, basically. And he then did an ad for Nike. Nike, of course, is this big company. They, they have very sophisticated branding. And they they used him as a way to sell their brand. I mean, they put him on the cover of this uh, advertisement. They put him in a commercial. And so what you saw is that people that were very reactive or like people that are against uh, Kaepernick were burning Nike shoes and their clothes and all this shit. Then you had people that were like for Kaepernick and they were like proudly displaying their new pair of Nike sneakers. Like, I support Kaepernick and I think Nike did a great job. And I'm like, you realize... That Nike, as a corporation, as something, as a brand, is capitalizing, capitalizing, making money directly off of social justice, like actually addressing systemic racism in this country, you shouldn't be making fucking money off that, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's, that's how sick this system really is when, when real lives are on the line and, you know, people are trying to use that activism to sort of generate profit you know it's really sick and so like you said you know i I imagine that bank that you're talking about in brazil mina i'm sure they had in mind uh potentially that this would become maybe i'm wrong but just like with the nike ad they knew that there would be blowback or they knew that there would be a negative response uh whether it's from the state like you mentioned with bolsonaro banning which of course is troubling because it's as you said it's exactly what the dictatorship 
in Brazil did. Obviously, that's very disturbing in and of itself. But then you also have this this sort of uh, how activism has been totally subsumed in this like obsession with hashtags and sharing, uh, you know, on social media and all of that. And and I get that completely. It's like the bank that you're mentioning knew that by putting that that ad out, that it would spark that response and that people would be sharing it and that so-called activists would be like using it as an example of like good marketing or something. It's just, we're in a, like you said, we're in a fucking strange time. And that's, again, to point back to Corey's work, that is what her work really is. It's an extremely valuable resource. And if people would get their heads out of their asses long enough to read it and to understand what is happening right now on this planet we're all sharing and how there that we exist within a, a global capitalistic economic system that informs so much of what is discussed in the media, you know, like that's, that enough should make you a little skeptical of when things like you mentioned in your piece, Mina, uh, you know, we should be skeptical of things that are, are trending, you know, um, Obviously, there are things that exist outside of that a little bit. I mean, there's a little bit of gray area there, but more and more we're moving in that direction. And so we need to pull ourselves away from our screens a little more, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else. Pull ourselves away from the screen uh, time activism, you know, the, the Facebook and Twitter activism and all that, um, and engage in real real activism, which is not what the capitalists want. They want your energies to be sucked up into social media. It's an easy way to funnel off all that energy uh, into something that can actually make them money. So anyway, uh, that's all I have to say. Uh, Mina, thank you for that message. I, again, appreciate your work so much. People, go check out her essay. It's fucking brilliant. Uh, The title of which, again, is Trending Topics Don't Matter. You can find it at abeautifulresistance.org. Check out Mina's work. She's amazing. And my interview with her last year was excellent as well. And I really hope that I can continue to uh, continue to have this discussion with her and with all of you. So again, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is the Drop Me a Line feature. So if you want to have your call featured, potentially, it's obviously up to me if I decide to include it at the beginning of the episode or not. But if you want to have, uh, if you have any thoughts or ideas, any feedback you'd like to give me, please consider calling that phone number. And that is 208 918 that is 208-918-2837. And if you are outside the United States and you don't want to call a an American phone number for various reasons, whether it's expensive or international rates or anything like that, I understand that completely. Um, if you can record audio and send it to me via email or through, uh, you can just message me through social media. We'll figure it out. If you have a message you want to send me, there's a, uh, if you go to my contact page on my website, that's a good spot to go. You'll find my email there. So send it to me that way. Anyway, Mina, thank you. Thank you all for listening to this episode. Thank you so much. Uh, have a great one. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week, and as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, Take it easy, dude, but take it.